0: We've talked about how the familiar becomes invisible, so you can have clutter that just builds up around your place, and you don't see it over time because it just becomes familiar, and, and we, our eyes are drawn to, the, to new things, to novel things, and the clutter just kind of blends in, and we forget it 's there over time until something you know, clicks, and we realize, oh, that clutter's there, and it's usually when you want to invite somebody over. You're going to invite somebody over for dinner, or they're going to come over to your place and meet you to go out or something, and then you realize, oh man, you start to see your house through their eyes, and you realize, oh, I forgot to clean that up, and there's a shopping bag over there and some books laying over there, and and so the clutter is invisible until it's not, and then we have the, the opportunity to get that clutter out of the way, and today we're talking about the clutter of guilt and shame in our lives. And like any kind of clutter, guilt and shame can be invisible to us. It can become invisible to us over time until it's not. And so when we talk about guilt and shame, they are two different things. Maybe a lot of us don't really realize how guilt and shame are different, but they are different. And so it's always good to start with definitions. And so just some simple definitions here of guilt and shame. Guilt is a voice in your head, a feeling, that tells you that you did something wrong whether you actually did something wrong or not. The, the feeling of guilt is a feeling that you did something wrong. Shame is different than guilt. Shame is a painful feeling of humiliation that encompasses the whole self. And Brene Brown, who uh, has written and, and given TED Talks about shame, she's viewed as an expert now, I think, on the subject of guilt and shame. Um, she puts it this way. Guilt means I did something bad, Shame means I am bad. You can see that difference pretty clearly, can't you? Guilt means I did something bad, or at least I feel like I did. I think I did, and I feel guilty. And shame means I am bad. It's a feeling of humiliation that is connected to guilt. I did something bad, but it's, it's more than that. I am Bad. It affects me uh, socially. Brené Brown says this, it's not on the screen, but she said, "I, I I define shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. I don't believe shame is helpful or productive. In fact, I think shame is much more likely to be the source of destructive, hurtful behavior than the solution or cure. I think the fear of disconnection can even make us dangerous. When, when we feel a sense of guilt and then shame, we feel isolated from other people. We feel alone. We feel disconnected. And there is a type of irrational guilt and shame. If you believe that you've done something wrong or you just continually have this feeling... If, if we're honest, how many of us would say I just kind of always feel like I'm just not quite good enough, or I've, I've always just I don't I don't measure up, or I've just done something, or I just continually feel guilty, or, I just continually kind of feel this low-level sense of shame. I don't even know where it comes from. But, but if you even if it's not based on anything real, you haven't actually done anything bad, it's still there, and so it's kind of this irrational sense of guilt and shame, and there's no shortage of things to make us feel guilt and shame. Maybe you know people, let's see if you know people like this, people who just seem to have this gift of making you feel guilty. Do you know people like that? They just, it's just part of their charm. Like they just, they just have the power, the superpower of having other people feel guilty around them. They can make the most calloused person feel guilty and ashamed. They're blessed with this guilt-inducing tone of voice or uh, this look in their eye. That just makes you kind of shrink back with guilt and and shame. And they'll ask you to do something for them. And and you'll say, well, I'm kind of busy. and, And I wish I could, but I can't. And they'll say something like, okay, I just thought I'd ask. You know, they just have that special tone or I guess I'll just do it myself. I thought maybe you could help, but I guess I'll just do it myself. I thought you were a good Christian, but I guess I'll just do it myself. And they just have this special power to induce guilt. And there are many sources of guilt. It can be parents. It can start way back in childhood, where you just felt like you you just didn't measure up. It was just guilt and shame connected to your upbringing. It can come from other kids at school. It can come from bosses, coworkers, friends. The truth is, it can come from ourselves. These these irrational feelings of guilt or shame. What do you feel guilty about or ashamed of? Maybe you maybe you feel guilty about your own parenting. Maybe you're a parent and you think you're not a good enough parent and you feel guilty. Psychologists um, talk about this phenomenon of mommy guilt that affects a lot of moms where they, they're, they're mothers who are, are busy and they're just running around trying to you know keep all these plates spinning in the air and they just feel guilty like they're not a good enough parent. Mommy guilt. Or or maybe you feel like you're not a good enough spouse. Maybe you feel guilty about a habit you have and there's shame that, that, that comes from that. You wish you could stop and maybe you've tried but... it It just doesn't work, and you feel guilty, and maybe a sense of shame. Uh, Maybe you feel guilty that you're not closer to somebody in your life, relationally or geographically. Maybe you feel guilty about the amount of money you make or what you own. Or maybe you feel guilty because you have too much, you think. Or maybe you feel guilty and ashamed because you don't have enough. Maybe you feel guilty about something that was said to you years ago or something you said years ago. Maybe you blame yourself for a divorce or how your kids turned out, and you could just insert your own answer there. What is it for you? What is your guilt, your shame? The psychologist Albert Ellis used to say that guilt is at the heart of every psychological problem that humans face. And if you sat down with a counselor, chances are at some point a sense of irrational guilt and shame is going to come up in some way. In your life. And guilt takes a toll on your physical health as well. Michael McKee is the vice chairman of uh, the Department of Psychiatry and Psychology at the Cleveland Cl- Clinic. He writes, if you're guilty, you're probably getting stressed. If your body releases stress chemicals, it puts you at risk for minor stuff like headaches and backaches, but that's not all. Guilt also contributes to cardiovascular disease and gastrointestinal, gastrointestinal disorders. It can even have a negative impact on the immune system over time. Guilt contributes significantly to depression, as it very often involves a negative view of self and to anxiety. And then some of you may be thinking right now that it's ironic that you're sitting in a church talking about guilt and shame, because for many people, the greatest source of guilt and shame in their lives is their religion. Nobody wants to say amen. Everybody's like, amen, and just like swallow it. And and maybe your religious background is what is behind much of your feelings of guilt and shame. If if we took an informal poll on the sources of unhealthy or irrational guilt and shame in our lives, we might get a lot of votes for our religious upbringing. Maybe you've heard of the term Catholic guilt, but the truth of the matter is guilt is no respecter of the sign above the church door. There's Protestant guilt, Jewish guilt, non-denominational guilt. Like, there's no monopoly on handing out guilt. Maybe you grew up in a church that just seemed to specialize in, in putting shame and guilt on people. There are churches that dish out shame and guilt like Oprah used to give away prizes. Like, you get shame and guilt, you get shame and guilt, everybody gets shame and guilt. And it's just, it's just a part of the culture. And maybe you grew up like that, maybe, or maybe you've had an experience in, in your adult life uh, with organized religion that brought guilt and shame Uh, into your life and so there is irrational guilt and shame and there's also there is actual guilt there there of course none of us are perfect when we've done something wrong and we feel guilty over that maybe it's something a long time ago and we struggle with feelings of guilt and shame and we'll talk about that as well and how to deal with that but in the gospel of luke there is an account of how jesus encountered somebody who was living with a sense of guilt and and shame. Whether it's true or not, we're not really told if he was actually guilty, or if, or if maybe he felt irrational guilt and shame. But we know that everybody in his entire city looked down on him, and they put guilt and shame on him, whether he was deserving of it or not. And we read about it in Luke chapter 19, verses one through ten. It's the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. And so let's uh, let's read Luke chapter 19. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. They considered Zacchaeus a sinner. That was a social label put on Zacchaeus. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to, them, to him, today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man, Jesus is referring to himself, for the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. The son of man came to seek and to save what was lost lost. I'm extremely proud of our, our children's ministry here, Well Kids. And um, in Well Kids last week, the kids learned about Zacchaeus and they made a little craft to illustrate you know, this scripture of, of Zacchaeus meeting Jesus. And I, I ganked my four-year-old's craft here. I have a picture of it. And, and so those are some very large leaves uh, on the sycamore tree. And you, you can see Zacchaeus is, is standing on top of the, the leaf there on top. And you can see that's Jesus on the ground. Notice, I don't know if you can really tell, my son colored Jesus green, which is an improvement. Usually, you know, Jesus was Middle Eastern. Usually, he's considered white. You know, there's a meme uh, that goes around on Facebook, like, um, life must have been pretty hard for Jesus. He was the only white guy in the Middle East. And so, this is at least olive. So, that's, I think, you know, getting closer to the truth. But there's Jesus on the ground there and Zacchaeus climbing the tree because Zacchaeus was short. And he wanted to get to a place where he could see Jesus. Luke tells us that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. In any generation, the way to be popular is not to be a tax collector, correct? But in this time, it meant something even more than it does now. A chief tax collector, especially one who was wealthy, like Luke says, uh, was an entrepreneur. In the ancient Roman world, this is in the time of the Roman Empire, who occupied Palestine, which is now Israel, which is where Jesus lived, a tax collector was an entrepreneur. And a tax collector went to the Romans, and they paid an amount to the Romans up front. So I want to be a tax collector. So the tax collectors would pay the Romans for for the, the job of being a tax collector. And then the tax collectors would go and collect taxes. So they had to collect enough tax that, you know, to satisfy the, the tax requirements for the Romans, but they also had to get their money back that they had paid to, be, to have the job of being a tax collector. And then tax collectors had the reputation of not just collecting the taxes that the Romans wanted and not just getting their money back, but obviously making a profit, maybe a little bit of one, but then often not a little profit, a large profit. And so tax collectors were viewed as extortionists people who preyed on their communities and they were viewed as sellouts because the romans were unwelcome they were an occupying force in the country and so a tax collector was somebody who was viewed as as selling out in order to take advantage of his community and make a lot of money off of them tax collectors were not allowed to be a part of the synagogue which was the Jewish community of worship. Jesus was a Jew. All of the first followers were Jewish. And tax collectors were not allowed to be a part of the synagogue. That was essentially their church. Imagine being so ostracized, you're not allowed in church. And, and if, you, if you come to church, there are people who would say, oh, there's that sinner. I recognize that person, and I know what that person does. That person's a sinner, and you're not welcome here. Zacchaeus was not welcome in his synagogue. So he was shunned by his own people. And he lived in Jericho, which was a resort city close to the Dead Sea. It looks a lot like Chandler, actually. Um, It's uh, it's a desert with lots of palm trees. It's called the City of Palms. But there are other kinds of trees in Jericho. A sycamore tree is one of them. It's a lot less painful to climb, probably, than a palm tree. And so Zacchaeus climbed a sycamore tree to see Jesus. It was dishonorable for a self-respecting man to run in the ancient Near East. And to climb a tree in a robe, you can imagine, it was pretty, you know, that's not viewed as self-respect either. And Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus so badly that he was willing to, to jump through the hoops, to run, to climb a tree, to, to where he could see Jesus. He wanted to see Jesus so badly, he was willing to just go through whatever the people you know, wanted to say about him. And insult him. And it's an interesting thing that Zacchaeus may have actually been innocent. We're not told in Luke whether he really was an extortionist or not. He he may have become rich by other means. We're not told. His name actually means innocent. It's just an interesting feature of the story. So we're not told if, if Zacchaeus is even actually guilty of what the people think he's guilty of. But it didn't matter because in their perception he was guilty and they shamed him. Maybe the same thing has been done to you. Maybe you do that to yourself. Maybe you do that to yourself because it was done to you. And you kind of took that on and believe that over time. I want to ask you, it's kind of a heavy question, but where has your sense of guilt and shame come from? Whether it's real or imagined, where has your sense of guilt and shame come from? What is that in your life? And remember, clutter can be invisible for a long time until it's not. And then you finally realize, man, I, I've been—I kind of have been feeling guilty about this thing. Maybe you did it, maybe you didn't, but I just kind of feel guilt here, and I feel shame attached to that. And then you just start to like, like uh, backtrack and trace back through your life how those feelings have affected you—those guilt feelings and those feelings of shame—and you kind of look back and man, it, I think I acted that way in that relationship because I felt ashamed, I wasn't worthy or. I felt guilty. I think that opportunity, maybe I, maybe I missed out on that because of the way I felt. Or maybe this could have worked out differently, but, man, those feelings of guilt and, and shame were, were messing with me. And I wasted all this time, all this energy, like Jackie said, you know, feeling this way. And, man, I've, I've missed out on all this time. you have tripping all over this clutter of guilt and shame in, in our lives. But where did your sense of guilt and shame come from? Again, like, like we said, maybe it came from your upbringing. There are parents who maybe try their best. Maybe they don't. But they create an atmosphere of guilt and shame. Maybe it came from them. Maybe it came from kids at school. You see that story this week. It was a nine-year-old boy um, who has dwarfism, and his mother videoed him crying. He was bullied so so badly in school. He's nine years old in Australia. He was crying to his mom, telling her that he wanted to die. And a bunch of celebrities saw that. And then Twitter being Twitter... Some people went and started digging up pictures saying that he was 18 and he was an actor. Not true. And so this is a nine-year-old kid and he has dwarfism and he goes to school every day and gets bullied and he was crying to his mother at nine years old that he wanted to die. And, you know, there were people saying, well, it's a fake story and all that kind of stuff. Okay, well, even if it was, he represents a few million other kids that come home from school crying And they don't want to go back to school. And some of those kids get to the place where they don't even want to live in life. Because that's just what humans do to each other. If we perceive that somebody else is different in any way, let's be honest. We tend to look down on that person. We tend to mistreat them. We tend to ostracize them. We make fun of them. We bully them. We push them away. We think that they're so different than us. I mean, just for the most ridiculous of reasons. That's just human behavior. That's what humans do. The the history of humanity is full of war. And tribal conflicts that were often not even based on real differences at all, just ridiculous. And we see that in our culture today with the, with the division we face. And of course, we all have all kinds of feelings and anxiety about that, but we see that at work now. Maybe it, it comes from, you know, messages that you believe about yourself now. Maybe you look at social media and, and you see posts that people make on Facebook and Instagram and you compare your life to what you're seeing on their social media there's a, there's a phenomenon of that now. The suicide rate among young men, especially in the United States, has tripled or quadrupled in the past 20 years. Which, I mean, is just obviously alarming. And people are wondering why that's the case. And it, there's some theory, at least, that it has something to do with social media. That we compare our lives to the pictures that other people are posting. And, and you know, it's it's sad because... We always put our, our best selves out there, usually on social media, correct? I mean, it's not, like, it's not like you're posting the worst moments of your life on Facebook. That's not exactly what's happening. We always just put our best look out there, and then, and then we see that, and then we compare ourselves to other people. So you have FOMO, the fear of missing out. Have you heard of that? Where I just feel like I'm missing out on things in life, or I just don't have as much as other people have, or I'm not as beautiful as other people, or they just have a better life than me. And, and social media has to play into that. Again, maybe it is parenting. Maybe it's mommy guilt. But where does your guilt and your shame come from? There are people who just throw guilt grenades like we talked about earlier. Like they just have this special gift of inducing guilt. Maybe you have people in your life like that where they're just tossing guilt and shame grenades at you. And if somebody's doing that, and if you say to that person, you know, sometimes you just make me feel bad. and I like you, and I want to be friends with you, I want to have a relationship with you, but sometimes you just make me feel bad. Can we talk about that? Then you have the opportunity to set a boundary with that person and and to where they can't do that uh, to you anymore and make manipulative statements like that. Again, maybe it's your religious upbringing that was the source of guilt and shame in your life, but where does your guilt and shame come from? For some of us, and I'm probably included in this, not probably, please, I'm included in this, that... Throughout much of my life, and a lot of it did have to do with my religious upbringing, if you know my story, I grew up in a super you know, conservative, fundamentalist Christian home, that I just had these voices in my head making me feel guilty. And I had a sense of shame, you know, just for, you know, over nonsense. And it was almost like you know, there's, I was on trial, You're looking back on it. Almost like I was on trial all the time and, and just had people proclaiming guilt over me. And it, As I was reflecting on this, it reminded me of the scene in uh, the original Superman series. I, I grew up on the, the Christopher Reeve Superman. Can I get an amen, brothers and sisters? Back in the day. And now it's just all superhero movies. You know, they come out with the Avengers and, and, and Marvel and DC and so on. But back then, that was like the first. The Christopher Reeve uh, Superman series and. My mom took me to a drive-in theater, remember that, when I was like four years old and we put the, what now would look like a toaster, but it was like the speaker that you put on the door and that's how you, you heard the sound of the movie, and it like, like, like it's coming out of a tin can. And I remember watching Superman and I spent the next five years jumping off furniture in a cape. I mean, I was absolutely hooked on Superman. And there's this clip at the beginning of Superman 2, it's the trial of General Zod, who is Superman's enemy, and this is on Krypton, Superman's home planet, before it exploded. And, and Zod and his, uh, his uh, cohorts were put on trial. And sometimes I just view my own religious upbringing like the trial of Zod. Check out this, this uh, one-minute clip. Caught in a further act of seditious treason. General Zod, your only feeling was contempt for our society. Your only desire was to command. There, uh, sir, the only feeling you showed was for your vicious general, your only wish to rule at his side. Don, you are as without thought as you are without voice. This council has no hesitation in proclaiming you All guilty, 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 guilty. Surrounded by voices, guilty, guilty. You feel like that? When I look back over my own life, I had that feeling. Surrounded by these voices, guilty, guilty. Whether I'd actually done anything or not. Now, of course, I'm not perfect, of course. I've committed lots of sins in my life. But I was made to feel guilty for things that weren't. And maybe maybe you can identify with that. Somebody told me this week in our church, Patrick. I was talking to Patrick. He told me about a a series called Black Mirror. If any of you have seen seen that series, but it's I think the first episode of season three of Black Mirror it's called Nosedive. And in this, it's kind of like a Twilight Zone kind of vibe. And in this episode, everybody has an implant in their eye, which may not be that far-fetched. We're we're going to wearables now and in in Black Mirror. Everybody has an implant in their eye. And every time that you interact with somebody in this episode, you talk with them, you interaction with them at all, you rate them. You give them a rating, like a one through five. And with this implant, everything is connected to social media as we go throughout life in in the episode. And as you look around a room full of people, above everybody's head is their rating. And so you look at a person and hanging over their head, it's like their Yelp rating or their Google review. Everywhere you look. And and so, of course, it's this shame-based pressure cooker of a society. Because you have to tiptoe and walk on eggshells around everybody and always be thinking about, man, I hope this person gives me a good rating. Because if they don't, they can crash my rating and then people are going to start to ostracize me. And so the episode is about this, um, this character who has like a bad encounter with somebody and they just crash her rating. And so she has to go through life with one star. And, and I just think, you know, that's such a... Uh, such a compelling picture of the way many of us feel and the way, I mean, it could actually happen in reality here over the next couple of decades, but a lot of us feel like that. Like we go through life with this rating over our head and we live in this society where, you know, we just have this number hanging over our head and this sense of guilt and shame connected to that. Zacchaeus had one star hanging over his head and that was not okay with Jesus Christ. It was not okay for somebody to walk through life with one star over his head. And Jesus saw Zacchaeus making a fool of himself running and climbing a tree. And he knew this man's reputation, he could see what was going on. And he invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house for a meal. And just like today, I mean, even more so in the ancient world, having a meal with somebody meant that you were associating with him. That you were building a friendship with them. That you were were cultivating a relationship with that person. And and that your rating was somehow tied with their rating. And when Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house, this is a scandalous thing. The people say he's invited himself over to the home of a sinner. Somebody with one star. Somebody who has been ostracized. Whether Zacchaeus is actually guilty of anything or not, we're not told. But that's just the way humans act. Jesus has invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house. And Zacchaeus, his, 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 he's so touched by this invitation. It's like, it's like the, he's been surrounded, imprisoned by the clutter of guilt and shame. And it's like he just... Throws all of that clutter off. Like the lady cleaning her, her home in the video. He tosses, you know, there's clothes flying everywhere out of Zacchaeus's life. Clutter's just flying through the air. And he says, look, Lord, if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay them back four times. I'll give half my possessions to the poor. Lord, I, I want to be a good person. I am a good person. I don't deserve the guilt and the shame. I want to be a part of my community again. I'm tired of living this way. It was Jesus' invitation that freed him to throw all of that clutter out of his life. And in verse 10, Jesus explains what just happened. What just happened here? Like If you're going through the crowd, you're like, what just happened here? And Jesus says, what just happened? Listen now, in America, in 2020, in the religious environment we live in, where religion is one of the tools that's used to shame and guilt and ostracize people the most, and it fuels xenophobia, and it draws boundary lines, and it's used to get votes, and, and people kill themselves because their churches rejected them. Listen now, Jesus says, verse 10, I have come to seek and to save the lost. I have come to find people who have been ostracized, who have been kicked out, who have been... Excluded, who have been demonized, who have been shamed, who have been guilted into not being a part of their communities. I have come intentionally looking for them. This is not an accident. I have come to seek and to save the lost. And in that moment, it's it's even deeper than Zacchaeus being lost. The whole society's lost. And Jesus comes saying, ostracizing people and not letting them in your synagogue and putting impossible weight, burdens on people's shoulders and guilty them and shaming them is not the way to live in this life. Because they could could turn around and give you one star just as easily. Nobody is perfect in this world. And if one person deserves to be buried in guilt and shame, everybody does. And that's just a horrible way to live. And there is a better way. Can't you just hear Jesus coming to America right now? And that message that I have come to seek and to save the lost. Because it kind of feels like we're all kind of lost. And Jesus says, I have come to seek and to save the lost. And you know, that is, let me put it to you this way is that the message you got growing up in church? That Jesus comes to seek and to save the lost. I remember being on Mill Avenue probably 15 years ago. I lived here before and then moved back to Ohio for a while and then came back eight years ago. And And it was on, I was 15 years ago, I was too old to be hanging out on Mill Avenue. But I was still there. And, and uh, I remember seeing a street preacher on the corner on Mill Avenue. Have you seen those? And the guy had a bullhorn. And he's shouting, and it's like the tin can voice, is the turn or burn, you know, and I know what you've come here to do, and God says, you, if you don't repent, you're going to burn forever. And, and that voice just rings out. And I remember him, him uh, shouting through the bullhorn, some of you came here to drink beer tonight. And I thought, buddy, we all came here to drink beer tonight. Don't shortchange me. Don't underestimate me. You know, and he was just, he was preaching this fire and brimstone turn or burn, sermon and if you listen to that you get the idea that man God just doesn't like you God is hacked off and, and uh, apparently if you, just, if you go to Mill Avenue if you go grab something to eat and, uh, and that's the view that lots of people have gotten from churches that claim the name of Jesus and, oh I'm a Christian and I'm thankful that I'm not like those other people When the whole time, Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save the lost. And we find that to some degree, we're all lost. And Jesus intentionally comes to seek and to save you and me and all of us together as a group. And so Jesus removes guilt and shame, whether it's real or imagined, whether it's irrational guilt and shame, or whether it's something real. I mean, let's be honest. We've all done things in our lives that we wish we had not have done. The only people who literally have no regrets are sociopaths. I mean, we we all have fallen short in some way. We've said something, we've done something. And so maybe it's irrational guilt that you feel, or maybe it's rational guilt that you struggle with. I remember about a week after I got my driver's license, I was driving in my hometown back in Ohio, and there are lots of one-way streets in my hometown, and I was actually um, leaving a church building where I was, I had been hanging out with some friends who were in this Christian rock band, and, and was leaving this church building that was on a one-way street at night, and I wanted to get to the street that was like a hundred feet away, but it was the wrong way, down the one-way street, right out in front of the church building, and I want, it was just right there, you know, I mean, the street that I want to get to is just right there, if I, if I turn the right way, and down this one-way street, I'm gonna have to go around the entire block to get back to that street I want to go to. And it's just like a hundred feet away; it's right there. And so, when the when the the only turn was a right turn, I made a left turn. Down, you know, driving the wrong way down a one-way street. It's just a split second. I turned out. I see lights behind me, and woo, woo, woo. And a state Ohio State trooper must have been in the parking lot right across the street from the church, and I didn't see him. and, and he. Pulled me over. I'd had my license for a week. I was scared, you know, nervous, and didn't know what to do. And I saw him walking up behind the car with his flashlight. And I said, "Oh, I better get my registration out of the glove box." And I reached into my glove box, and he was not very happy about that. He he ran up, "Get out of the car! Get out of the car! Get out of the car! Step out of the car!" And I, I, this this is, I'm dead. This is it, you know. I'm 16 years old, and, um, you know, I just got my license, and I'm a virgin, and I'm about to die. And, and, and so I stepped out of the car, and I, I had both my hands up, and I'm a, sorry, 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 sorry. And he looked at me, and I was the same height I am now and like 40 pounds lighter. And it was like, you know, I turned sideways, and I became invisible. And he's like, I think when he saw me, he's like, okay, this kid's no threat. So he calmed down, and he said, listen, you can't do that. You know, you can't grab, you can't reach into the glove box like that. And I said, I'm sorry. He said, come back here. He put me in the front seat of the cruiser, which is better than being in the back seat of the cruiser. And he wrote me out a ticket and said, drive the right way down the one-way street and and don't reach in your glove box. Keep your hands on the wheel if we're walking up to the car. And and so I got a ticket for driving the wrong way down a one-way street. Why? I was guilty. I just thought, well, the street's right there. Now, I didn't know, you know, had some, uh, well, I should have known, didn't think about it. Had somebody turned that corner really quickly, I could have hit them head on. And that's why the law is the way that it is. And did I really feel guilty? Not so much. You know, I paid the ticket. And it wasn't until sometime later I realized, man, driving the wrong way down a one-way street is deadly. That's stupid. That's why it's illegal. So I didn't even feel guilty, but I was. There are people who go through life mistreating, hurting people. They don't feel guilty, even if they are. We don't want to be those kinds of folks either. We want to be people who just see ourselves rightly. Correct? When I, when, if I have irrational guilt and shame, well, where does that come from? And it's time to get rid of that. And if I have actual guilt, well, then what can I do to make that right? I can seek forgiveness. I can make amends. I can go to that person, I can apologize, and I can do better, regardless of whether it's real guilt or imagined guilt. This is what Jesus does, and it's, it's part of seeking and saving the lost. The Gospel of John, um, chapters 19, 15 through 16, Pontius Pilate has Jesus standing in front of the people, and they shout about Jesus, take him away, crucify him, crucify him. This says, finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. Jesus was led outside of the city of Jerusalem uh, to be given over to evil. Jesus was crucified. And then in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 8 through 10, and then, and then verse 22, there I think we have this on the screen. This is first he said, uh, sacrifices, he, um, the writer of Hebrews is quoting one of the prophets in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, God did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said about Jesus, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And in verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, And with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So there's some deep Christian theology there that we don't have time to unpack. But in short, people who want to follow Jesus Christ believe that in some mysterious way, the death and resurrection of Jesus was him declaring it in the ultimate sense. I have come to seek and to save the lost. That Jesus, God in the flesh, gives himself, gives God's self on the cross, tortured, horribly executed, and that shows the awfulness of sin in our world and, and a domination empire like the Romans who didn't feel guilty about what they were doing. And Jesus said, I, I've come to show a better way. And if you follow my example, then you can join me, you can partner with me in seeking and saving the lost. That's our third value at the well. You can partner with God to make a difference with your life. And Jesus says, you can join me in this lifestyle of seeking and saving the lost. And whereas in the, in the old system, there were animals were sacrificed as offerings to God, Jesus makes himself that. And again, there, there are lots of different views about that and arguments throughout history about what that means. But in some way, Jesus gives of himself on the cross for us and in the resurrection to take away guilt and shame. Whether real or imagined, it's called the atonement. It it means reconciliation. Whereas we thought we were separated from God, Jesus reconciles us with God. It's atonement, atonement, atonement. We're made one again. We're reconciled with God. We're reconciled with other people in the community that we've had separations with, if at all possible. Some people don't let it be possible, but if if at all possible, we can reconcile. And then also, we can reconcile with ourselves. Jesus removes guilt and shame. It's what Jesus does. I think if Jesus were on Twitter, his bio would be, I have come to seek and save the lost. It's what he does. And then we'll wrap it up with this. With Jesus, removing guilt and shame from your life, it's still a process. There is a journey out of guilt and shame. And again, that verse we read in Hebrews 10, 22 says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and the full assurance that faith brings right, that we've been cleansed, we've been washed. We're not guilty Anymore to draw near to somebody is to walk up to them, to walk up beside them, and to and to have a relationship with that person, to draw near. You know, instead of distancing yourself or separating or pushing somebody away, you draw near to somebody. And somehow it's that that process of drawing near to God. When we feel overwhelmed with feelings of guilt and shame, reminding us, wait a second, no. The Son of Man, Jesus, has come to seek and to save the lost. Jesus doesn't want separation between and distance and and no, but to come near. Jesus wants me to draw near, and I can keep drawing near, and I can walk with God. And it might be a long journey, but I can walk with with, with God who forgives me and restores me and wants to be reconciled with me and wants to help me reconcile with other people. And there's this continual, this process of drawing near and walking alongside God. We baptized three girls today. And the church traditionally has not done a very good job of really teaching anybody how to really draw near and walk with God. And that could definitely be said of Uh, the way that the church has acted towards females. Uh, Often the church has put messages of guilt and shame. And of course, this is anybody. Of course, uh, sexuality is always a difficult topic throughout Christian history. Anybody who doesn't fit the mold, the church has has shamed and guilted. But just females in general. And so Rachel Held Evans uh, was an author and blogger and and speaker who passed away in May of last year in 2012 she wrote a book called A Year of Biblical Womanhood, How a Liberated Woman Found Herself Sitting on Her Roof, Covering Her Head, and Calling Her Husband Master. And what she did was, she, she went through the Bible and took all of the commands toward women, literally, out of the ancient world. And, and she wrote this book, and it was, it was a funny book. I mean, it's, it was a, a good piece of comedy about how interpreting the Bible literally is foreign to any 21st century person, even the people who claim that, oh, we're a Bible-believing church, and they just do everything and take everything literally. They don't really. And so she wrote this book to show how interpreting the Bible requires thought and how it needs to be interpreted in its historical context and thinking people can take the Bible seriously if they view it in its historical context. And She grew up in Dayton, Tennessee, famous for the Scopes Monkey Trial in 1925 in which a school teacher was prosecuted for teaching evolution in school, and they thought that was unchristian, to teach the theory of evolution in school and cuz that was based on a little reading of genesis you know as many of you probably know about and she grew up in this hyper religious environment and then she got to be around you know, college early 20s and started to challenge that and her books and her blogs were, her blog posts were not mean spirited but she challenged the faith that she grew up in but she displayed a level of grace and she was a bridge builder and she wrote as somebody who grew up as a woman in fundamentalist christianity One of the experiences she wrote about was what's called purity culture. And purity culture was this phenomenon in evangelical Christianity in the past few decades that viewed women and girls primarily as objects of temptation and therefore teaches them to be pure and puts an inordinate amount of pressure on young women in church and blame and essentially makes that the biggest deal in their faith. And so, to young women, the church said, okay, if you want to be a Christian, then here's the main thing you need to know, and it was purity culture. My wife went to a Christian elementary school and a Christian high school in in the purity culture, and my wife said in high school, the, the skirts that girls wore had to be a certain length, had to be down to the knee, and of course, any school can enforce their dress code if they want, but listen to how they handled it. In my wife's school, she said if a teacher suspected a girl's skirt was too short, male or female teacher, they would have the girl get down on her knees. And if the skirt touched the floor, she was pure enough. If it didn't, she had to go change. Picture a male teacher in a Christian school making a teenage girl get down on her knees to prove that she is pure. What is going on here? And Rachel Held Evans called out purity culture and she wrote about how destructive it was to shame young women in that way. And she wrote about wearing baggy clothes as a teenager so she wouldn't be a temptation and, and, and just always trying to be you know, super modest because you know, this, this was like the biggest deal in following Jesus that you had to, you had to you know, be modest and fit into this purity culture. And it gave her an authoritarian view of God. She said it, it taught her that women are judged by the extremes of being pure or polluted. It's one or the other. And, and that religious leaders often objectify women just like the culture does. And it's a shame-based religion. And she wrote about how women who are, who are lucky enough or blessed enough or something enough to grow out of that culture. To be able to be raised that way but then to be able to transcend that are women who go through this process of decluttering. This guilt and shame that has surrounded them and, and that, no, God's not like that. God's not obsessed with purity. God's not going to make you hit your knees to prove your skirt's long enough. That's, that's this twisted, weird view of God that who knows what psychological stuff's going on there in the faculty that does that. But that's, that's for their therapist to figure out But God is the kind of God who comes to seek and to save the lost to the point of giving his own life to say, You're not, you are no longer guilty. Whatever sense of guilt or shame you had, that doesn't have to be there anymore. And Rachel wrote this, I'll close with this. She wrote this in her book, Searching for Sunday. It has become cliche to talk about faith as a journey, and yet the metaphor holds. Scripture doesn't speak of people who found God. Scripture speaks of people who walked with God. God found them, and they walked with God. This is a keep moving one foot in front of the other, who knows what's next, or who knows what's next deal, and you never actually arrive. I don't know if the path's all drawn out ahead of time or if it corkscrews with each step like Alice's Wonderland or if it's some like to say we make the road by walking. But I believe the journey is more a labyrinth than a maze. No step taken in faith is wasted, not by a God who makes all things new. And so if you struggle with guilt and shame, whether real or imagined, the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ is that Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost, and we're all lost, and Jesus is coming for you. Coming to find you, looking for you like Zacchaeus, to say what, you, you, you don't have to be part of this, this domination system that shuns people and ostracizes people and, 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 and puts guilt and shame on them. You don't have to play their game. I've come to free you from that. And if you draw near to me and walk with me, we can go through this process of decluttering and getting rid of all this guilt and shame. I invite you to pray with me. God, thank you for this scripture and for all the people who are here this morning, a part of a community where we want to proclaim the Jesus of the gospels that we're gonna talk about next week when we get into the gospel of mark for Lent and talk about who Jesus really is. There are so many versions of Jesus in our culture. He gets hijacked for politics and Jesus gets used for all you know all kinds of agendas and ridiculous messages meant to divide and, and shun. That's not the Jesus that we have presented to us in the Gospels. Many of us, if not all of us, feel a sense of guilt and shame, whether real or imagined. For people who just feel those voices around them like Superman 2, guilty, guilty, guilty. God, we don't have to live like that. We can draw near to you. And maybe through reading scripture, being a part of a connect group, going to see a counselor, we can can begin that process of decluttering, getting rid of all that guilt and shame in our lives. There are some of us who, yeah, we feel guilty about something maybe we actually did. If that's the case, the answer is the same. Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. Every day we have the opportunity to pray, God, forgive me. God, wash me. God, cleanse me. And every day is an invitation to start new. I can make amends. I can try to make it right, do whatever I can, as far as it depends on me. I don't have to live surrounded by the clutter of guilt and shame. It's not the life that God has called us to. Some of us here have been shunned or ostracized like Zacchaeus And we haven't done anything wrong to deserve that. It's just the church culture we grew up in or the messages that we got from parents or friends or bullies or whoever else. God, I thank you for the freedom that we feel from that statement Jesus makes. I have come to seek and to save the lost. We're all lost. A lot of times, it's the culture that's lost. And it wasn't you, actually. It was the people around you who wanted to feel better about themselves or just wanted to go along with the culture war, religious politics, and they, they put all that on you needlessly. And you don't have to walk through life surrounded by that clutter. You can draw near to God. And through, through a process of walking with him, as Rachel talks about, you can, you can get rid of that clutter of guilt and shame in your life. God, we thank you for the healing that you do for us. As we sing this final song, God, may it be a prayer that we all sing together.